You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. I told AJ we have to do that. We have to cover this bird. This is the, well, one of the longest migratory raptors on Earth. What can they teach us? fascinating is when they hit the Indian Ocean, uh, I mean, they're flying for two to three days straight. No stops, no food, no water. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I'm bringing it today, Angie. I am (laughs) so literally excited about this episode and this bird. I know. It was a really fun week uh, studying the Amur falcon. The story, the migration, everything surrounding this bird. It's just, the only thing I could say to the listeners is doing this podcast for the last three three and a half years now, right? I guess the time has flown. Each week, I know you enjoy learning with us. We enjoy learning, you know, researching, looking up the articles, the scientific research on these animals, present the data to you. It's just, you run across these stories sometimes and it just, I get giddy. I was so giddy last night, today, waking up, getting ready to record this episode because the story of the Amur Falcon their conservation, their migration. It's, it's I just was like, wow. Uh, yeah. 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 It really, really is. And you and I are so funny all week long going back and sending each other like, well, read this one or what about this? Or yeah, it's just, it's been a really, really interesting week. And I hopefully you're going to fall in love with a mural falcon like we did. And Chris did an amazing interview that you'll have to check out. It's going to drop in a couple of days and I'll let him touch on that a little bit more, but it definitely complements this, uh, this pod perfectly. Well, yeah, okay. So it's it's another Whitley Award winner, and listen to Nuclu Farm again. Each each of these, and, and we still have a few to, to drop. We have Paula coming up next week, and a couple others. Each one of these winners, grassroots conservation story, so inspirational. Oh, just wow! I mean, it gives me goosebumps. You know, chills up my spine giddy with happiness that people like this are out there. Yeah. And you want to listen to Nuklu Farm in Nagaland in India. I'm going to talk a lot about that area of the world today because he brought up, you know, the Amur Falcon. And again, I didn't know a lot about it. I, you know, we still have to do the Peregrine Falcon and a few other Arctic Tern. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So there's other birds out there that were on our radar, but after listening to his story, I told Angie we have to do that. We have to cover this bird. This is the well, one of the longest migratory raptors on Earth. It is the longest. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple for a raptor that, for a bird of prey. For a raptor, mm-hmm. right? They go from basically think of North China, Mongolia, all the way to South Africa, and we're going to talk about that today. Yes, fourteen countries, two continents, one ocean. I mean, it's. <laughs> It's, it's just, 
It's incredible. It really nature is so radical. It's so amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun today. And and of course, full disclosure, uh, Chris and I are not ornithologists or bird experts, but I will tell you, we have loved learning about birds. They're fascinating, and hopefully, we can bring some of that excitement to you about their physiology and behavior because this Amura falcon is just incredible. I, I am I am turning into a big bird fan thanks to to Jesse here in New Zealand. Awesome. And, yeah, I'm even looking at I, I'm I'm gonna talk to Jesse about joining a local bird watching group because you know we do have the New Zealand falcon down here when I get to evolution talk about that and I know Jesse always tries to see one when we go out you know he's like oh, okay on my list I haven't seen a New Zealand falcon yet and so you know he, he every year he he goes out and looks at all the birds but. The story of Nukulufam, Nagaland, why it's important for the Amir, Amir Falcon. Well, and for all the birders out there in Nagaland, and I know you're going to touch on it, but just, I mean, the quick cliff notes is that is the, it's the biggest gathering of birds of prey on the planet. So <laughs> Thousands, if you, thousands. Hundreds of thousands. So if you yes. want to see an Amur Falcon, that's where you need to go. Uh, and we'll talk about that today as well. It's definitely now on my top 10 list of places on the planet. I want to go visit in October to see this migration because it's a fascinating story. So check out that interview. Just, it gives, again, gives you a lot of hope. I think today the take home message in this podcast is there is a lot of hope out there. And that one person or one or two or a few people can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. You out Mm -hmm. there listening can make a huge, huge difference if you want to, if you put your mind to it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, real quick, thank you, Maria, for joining us on Patreon this week. Again, you are supporting us, supporting this work we do. I mean, just this morning, Angie conducted an interview for next month, so that will be coming your way. We're working hard, you know, many hours a week doing this podcast. So thank you for your support. It, it's helping us get the message out. So thank you so much. Again, a cup of coffee a month, a Starbucks a month supports Angie and I and our conservation message and telling these stories of a Nukulu farm or the Amur Falcon. So thank you so much. It means the world to us. Well, that and we also donate uh, 25% to an organization of the month that our Patreon listeners get to select. So uh, even though <laughs> we don't really make any money, we give it right back to the uh, to the conservation heroes that we get to talk to each month. So, And then just my little side note is in July, we will be having another team for the Plastic Free Eco Challenge that we've done the last couple of years. Uh, All Creatures Podcast will be hosting the team. I'll be team captain right along with Chris and uh, usually Allison. She she steps up to the plate and helps us, our dear friend Allison, uh, who also did an interview with us a long, long time ago about relocating. In the 20s. Mm-hmm. It's about, in the 20s. Episode it's 20 such something. a good one, though. It's I mean, talk about yeah. a dream job, um, helping re- relocate rhinos in uh, Africa. But at any rate, I will start uh, putting up links to help join our team on our social media sites and of course on our webpage and um, and I'll be giving links next in, in early July so you can join us and help us score points and I have some really amazing prizes for listeners that participate and that end up being some of our top 
point earners. And it says plastic free eco challenge, but keep in mind, it's not like you don't use plastic. It's just the whole month is trying to get ideas and share ideas and do challenges to try to reduce our plastic use and how to re and how to recycle and maybe reorganize how you do things in order to consume less plastic. So it's really, really fun. And I hope that you will join us. Yeah, look for that. That starts in a couple of weeks. So, you know, definitely be sure to check out, you know, our Facebook group, All Creatures Podcast, and also, you know, Instagram. We'll be putting some some info out. So so check us out there. So describing the Amur Falcon, it's beautiful bird. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. And for those of you from North America, the first thing that came to mind for me was uh, an American kestrel. In my previous life as a zookeeper, I got to work with birds of prey and uh, an American kestrel by the name of Artemis and Diana. I can't forget her. Uh, they were some of the birds that I, I learned to handle first for education programs. And yeah, they are just, they're smaller birds of prey. Um, beautiful. And these Amur falcons are very similar in size. So they're, they're a tiny falcon. They're somewhat dainty, if you will. And so to start with the male Amur falcon, his overall color is this dark gray, almost sooty color, uh, where with his underside being a lighter gray color and underneath the wings uh, is white. And then there's just an orange or some call a rufous splash um, on his lower underbelly parts. And he's just very, very clean lines, just very, uh, some describe it as very elegant looking uh, small bird of prey. Uh, and the females, completely different, females and ju juveniles, I should say, uh, there's going to be a lot of barring. And so on, on the overall body is brown, grayish in color with almost a bard-like pattern, uh, especially on her belly. Uh, it's going to be white and brown bars. And then on the underside of her wings is going to be barred. And then it's barred on the tail as well, this kind of brown, gray, uh, white alternating pattern. But all ages and uh, sexes are going to have these bright orange feet, legs and feet that stand out. Uh, and so that will help you identify them. But unless you go to Nagaland, uh, where Chris and I have put on our bucket list to see yes. tens of thousands of these guys get together Absolutely. when they're migrating, the feathered pattern of these guys is going to be similar to other species. Um, in fact, Chris will talk about, it, I'm sure when we get to evolution, but uh, they were once thought to be closely related to the red-footed falcon or the sooty falcon or a great kestrel. Um, so you have to really be a bird nerd to really, I, to identify one, um, unless you are going to some of their known breeding, roosting or migratory places. Yeah. And I mean, just the, the sizes, it's just, Oh, they're just beautiful birds. And it's like, they're good looking. I mean, they're good looking birds that, I mean, I think yeah, I'm, sure. the male is to me just very handsome with the, his very, yeah. he's got very clean lines and coloration patterns. No, oh, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. And they only stand about a foot tall or 35 centimeters, a wingspan of, you know, 28 inches or two feet or 70 centimeters. And they weigh a whopping quarter of a pound or 120 grams. <laughs> like, yeah. They're, I mean, when you think of, I don't know, when you think of a falcon, you think bigger, bird of prey, but right. no, yeah. they're very, they're very, they're small on the smaller side. 
Yeah, yeah, they're just amazing. And uh, okay, so again, a lot of what we're going to talk about today really dork out on some migration. Got some really interesting research on migration, migratory birds, and specifically the Amur falcon. So their range is massive. Crazy massive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they breed in East Asia, Russia, Mongolia, North China, North Korea, right? Mm-hmm. And then migrate down through China, India. They say sometimes they, they end up in Thailand, that parts of Southeast Asia. But then they fly over the Indian Ocean into Africa, East Africa, then all the way down to South Africa. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. When I put a picture up on my show notes of their distribution, it's pretty much like the globe. <laughs> the it whole is. part of the world. It's incredible. I mean, basically their range is over 8,000 kilometers. It, it's fa- More it's or fascinating. Less. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I know, you know, bald eagles do migrate, you know, down in Florida, we'd always see them come down, you know, during the winter to nest and everything. So I knew they migrated to an extent, but not this, not, this is insane. This is a huge, huge migratory route. Oh yeah, Chris, I just kept reading articles about what we know or what scientists are learning about their migratory patterns. And um, one of the more recent ones, they put transmitters on them so they could track them and just, I just, the paths are incredible. It's just yeah. amazing. New Glue talks a little bit about that. Like the the work that they've done is mm-hmm. now that they are tracking them in these long migration routes. And, you know, birds of prey, again, are very critical to an ecosystem. So these guys play a key role. They're, they're, they're not going after what you think of other birds of prey. They're more insectivores, right? But they still are, are critical. Oh, yeah. I was reading articles about uh, the importance of the mirror falcon uh, to consume insects. And uh, in South Africa, where they winter, uh, one article even discussed them being a keystone species because of all the insects that they consume. And if they were to if they were to be wiped out and weren't there, that it could really like hinder the crops and people's lives with all the insects that they are consuming each year. Well, it goes back to bats. Remember, I remember Mm -hmm. our very first, one of our first, it was probably our first bat episode where you said bats had like a $4 billion economic impact on farmers in North America. Right. Or just, just in the United States, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very similar, very similar. And now the hope is that since we're learning more about the mirror falcon and their migratory routes, that some of this ecotourism for bird enthusiasts and bird lovers out there to come see these pit stops during their migration in Nagaland could be a huge benefit to ecotourism uh, if that gets up and coming, which I'm sure you'll talk about in the interview. Definitely. He says, come visit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> come visit beautiful Nagaland. There, yeah, uh, Cliff Notes. There it is. Yeah, yeah definitely mm-hmm. come visit once we get out of this pandemic and and things subside. And and we do talk a little bit about how COVID has has not really affected them too much there. So it's good. It, it's really okay. a a beautiful area of Asia. And, and I'm going to talk about Nagaland here and the story of the Amur Falcon. It basically started in about 2012. 
where these falcons were being illegally harvested by the tens of thousands every year. And that caught the eye of environmentalists, conservationists, because Naga land is a critical pit stop during this migration that these birds go on. They spend a little bit over a month in Naga land where, you know, they came down from China and those areas. They congregate here and then it coincides with insect populations. So in October, insect populations are booming in Naga land. That's where the Amir falcons go. And they're really fattening themselves up so they can fly across the Indian Ocean and make it into Africa. So it's a very unique, again, such a unique story. So in Nagaland, they were being illegally harvested by the locals and sold for food and the feathers and, and all of this because the people there with economic development in Naga land were losing, they were losing land to grow their crops, things like that. So when this was brought to light and they realized how critical Naga land was for these birds, the locals there, one like Nukulu Fom, rose up and Nukulu Fom is a church worker. He is not a scientist. He's not a, he is an environmentalist. He obviously hear it in, in his heart and what he's doing but he doesn't have any formal training in biology. He, again, this is why these stories are so fascinating to tell that we've been telling with these Whitley Award winners. He stood up and a few others stood up and, and said, hey, we need to preserve our land, our natural resources, and this bird. And so he started to develop what he's, he calls peace corridors, things like that, to protect their habitat. Now, really quick, where's Nagaland? It's in India. It's a state within India. And, you know, for those that are ge geographically challenged, you know, so India, you have the main like piece of India because India's got a very interesting history. So you have what everybody sees. I don't even know. How, how would you describe that? It looks like a shark tooth, right? That's the mainland of India. Well, Nagaland and a few other states are on the eastern side. So in between... The northeastern. Right. Bangladesh is like in between the shark tooth and then this little outcrop of states of India. And then to the east of Nagaland, it borders with Myanmar or what was Burma. Okay. Uh, Bhutan is a little bit further north. And then Nepal is like northwest with the Himalayas from there. So, you know, it's a subtropical mixed forest, all Mountainous. sorts, yeah, all sorts of uh, trees. You have, you have tigers, leopards, elephants, pangolins, sloth bears, all sorts of deer, you know, civets, pythons, all sorts of animals live there. It's very rich. It's very rich in biodiversity. So when they recognize this in 2012, in 2013, you know, Nuclu Farm stood up and started to, to, to talk to the locals, educate the locals and stop this illegal harvesting because these birds need it. So he goes more into the, the details of his project, what he's doing. So again, listen to that interview. But again, it's just what I got out of that. It, 
what I got out of this bird, Angie, is there are like little pockets on earth. Like I, I go and, and I know we don't want to cover an insect, but I go back to monarch <laughs> butterflies in Mexico, right? They, there's that one area in, in well, Sonora. We would lo- I would love insects. I just don't know no. if it's our expertise. No. No. <laughs> it would be really would, hard. No. But, you know, you, the monarch butterfly was the Sonoran Desert or the Sonoran Mountains where, where they winter. And there's that one area in the world where the, it's just they're all congregated. Mm-hmm. And it's a critical habitat. It's a critical area for, for, for that species of insect. Well, that's Nagaland to the Amur Falcon. It is a critical, critical area. So, you know, it's a beautiful part of the world. I definitely, before I die and leave this planet, I, I really hope I can get there. Oh, yeah. I was fascinated by watching all the video uh, clips preparing for this podcast. And then also some of the articles with just the photos are just breathtaking. Of course, of all the Muir Falcons congregating, but just the land, the people, the culture uh, is just, is just fascinating. And well, and Chris, one of the articles that I was reading was discussing a similar story uh, about how a woman by the name of Bano Haralu, I think I'm saying that right, uh, who was a conservationist from that region, but then had gone off to, I think, New Delhi or uh, other regions of India to uh, for schooling and things like this. And she had heard a little bit about um, the mere falcon slaughter and was like, oh, you know, that can't be so. And then, yes, in 2012, came there, talked with the villagers and just was like, this has to stop. And so, so she worked very hard to help get the government and policymakers involved. And of course, work with locals as far as becoming uh, ambassadors and, uh, and helping and to continue the education of school children and just get everybody in the region really excited about this. Like you mentioned, this only place in the world where this happens, where they congregate in such large numbers. And as more attention is being turned towards the Amir Falcon and this migration stopover in Nagaland, the Doyang Dam is a real hot spot for them. Uh, but they're also finding that there's a few other pockets, a few other locations where large amounts of them congregate, but it's all still in a pretty small specialized area. Uh, so... It's just, yeah, it's just just a fascinating story. And the work by Bano and others, like you mentioned, just a few people have been making a world of difference. And I'm telling you, it, it just, it gives me a lot of hope. And, you know, again, like in this podcast, we, we have to give data and talk about some of the bad stuff that's going on out there with, with a lot of species around the planet, no matter where you are, it's just when you hear these grassroots stories and you realize, you know, people are changing, people are making a difference and you listeners are helping making a difference. So, you know, it gives us a lot of hope and that's why, you know, we we don't ever give it up and we keep fighting and fighting and fighting, telling these stories and, and doing the work. So yeah, Angie, they're, it just, I'm all smiles. I'm like, I've been all smiles, like in this podcast, getting ready for this. It's just exciting. 
Yeah, Chris. Well, just even reading articles about how locals were interviewed and they said, yeah, like it was, it was really hard. Like first the dam came in and brought us electricity, which was good, but then it flooded a lot of our fields. A lot of agriculture was decreased in that region. Uh, and so the locals, they were able to turn to fishing a little bit, but in the same instance, that's why poaching these birds was bringing them, you know, bring, I think it's like bringing them a lot of money and, and food. Yeah, yeah. But they understood or they listened and they all worked together and, and, and they understood that they needed to try something else and, and are, and are doing that and are mm -hmm, committed mm -hmm. and are once again, hoping that people will come there and ecotourism will, uh, will increase some of their revenues. So, but yeah, it's just a great, I mean, the community coming together, it's just yeah, a really feel good story. No, I mean, I, I definitely want to get there. I definitely want to somehow find my way to Nagaland now and, and see these birds. Like if you're a birder, I think that's a place on the earth that you need to go. You absolutely need to go. I'm going to talk to Jesse about it and say, dude, you got to go to Naga land. I'm, I'm, you know, you go <laughs> yeah. first and tell me where to stay and where not to stay and <laughs> how you got there. And then I'll follow you later. But um, yeah, just a, a fun. Well, bird. the government's taking notice, like conservation, um, some of the conservation trust groups in India, they're trying to help uh, rebuild the road there to make it easier for visitors to reach that pretty remote area of northeastern India. So uh, hopefully uh, it'll it'll become much less of a trek for people that do right. want to go there. Right, right. While still preserving the land. Exactly, yeah. Not like, totally urbanizing it, but, but keeping, the, uh, keeping the area pristine. Now, evolution was fascinating too a little bit because I'll, I'll get there in a second. But, you know, with the Amur falcon, obviously it's a bird, over 10,000 species of bird on the planet. They are the order falconiforms, which has an interesting history because, again, with genetics in the last 20 years have really changed a lot of what we understand with natural history. So this order used to include hawks, vultures, you know, condors, osprey, other birds, but because of genome sequencing, they realize they're not that closely related. So they've reclassified those other ones. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Since 2008. So falconiforms, that is. Wow. That was definitely, definitely after my bird biology class. So I learned things the wrong way. Well, <laughs> Yeah, but, but genetics. Well, you know, in the last yeah. century, no. things were different. You know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Before, <sighs> no, you're not that old. Um, anyways, so what's interesting now with this new classification, though, you, I don't think you would you would guess who falcons are more closely related to. I don't think you could you could even see. I just don't think you would you you would guess penguins. It right. Well, okay, <laughs> that's way the heck out there. Um, well, let's see, falcons. Uh, is it another bird of prey? Well, no, you would think no, not hawks, not eagles. I owls, no. Owls are more closely related to hawks or vultures, but no, falcons are more closely related to parrots and songbirds. Interesting. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? I would not have guessed that. No, neither. No way. Like, there you go. There, there's a there's a bird fact of the day. 
So falcons are, as a family, falconiforms are more closely related to your parrots and songbirds. So the songbirds, passeriforms. Oh gosh, Angie, you're going to have to help me with parrots. Pissaticiforms. I love you and I, I love know. that you tried it. <laughs> It's horrible. Probably, I, I don't have it in front of me. Citizens. But, uh, it's citizens. Yeah, there that's it what is. it is. I knew, I knew I had it. I knew I had it in that brain. <laughs> citizens. All right. That will probably be our next bird that we do. You know. Oh. All right. So the, the family Falconidae, Falcons and Car- Caracaras, which are South American. So there's about 60 species within that family. And it just Falcons are cool. Like. I, I didn't even remember, like, even doing this, my high school mascot, good old Tory Pines in San Diego. We were the Falcons, you know. Mm-hmm. Just, they, they're they distributed, they call it, you know, again, a cosmopolitan distribution all around I the world. I love that. I, yeah, I know that word. Yeah. It is. And, you know, the only places that you don't find them is the Arctic and Antarctica. It's just too cold for them. And here's an interesting fact about falcons, not just the Amur. The peregrine falcon has one of the widest ranges from Greenland to Fiji. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Like, wow. It's like, just yeah. Like, just huge, 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 huge. So, fun birds to study. The genus is Falco. And, like I said, New Zealand falcon, there's tons of them. The kestrels are in there, the red footed falcon, the Merlin bat falcon, I mean, Australian hobby or little falcon. They're, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. There's, there's a whole list of them. Uh, beautiful, beautiful birds. So about 40 species within that genus Falco. And then the Amur is Falco amurensis is their scientific name. Now, really quick on birds. You know, we talked about this, you know, came out through dinosaurs 160 million years ago. The pelicaniforms are the first to emerge 66 million years ago. That's where modern birds emerged. As far as raptors, anywhere from 35 million to 50 million years ago is where they really start to emerge out. A new world vulture, they think, in the Americas was one of the first about 50 million years ago. So still a lot of science to be done on when birds emerged. Now, what's interesting about raptors is when you look at their emergence, it really isn't till about... 10 to 20 million years ago, where you see this explosion of the diversity in species. So for those first 20 million years, there was not a lot of raptor species around, which is interesting. It was really the last 10 million, you know, I have this, this graph from the scientific article I got shows it's almost vertical where the diversity in species. So really in the last 10 million years is where in raptors really started finding all these niche niches. You know, mm-hmm. as you know, the, the earth went through the warming periods and then that cooling period is when they think that's really when they, they took off. Yeah. Yeah. There Pardon you go. The <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of, and again, a lot of convergent evolution going on, mm-hmm. you know, why the Amur Falcons, emer- you know, evolving in Asia in South America, or, you know, or, or North America, you have other falcon-like species, you know, developing similar traits. Now, falcons as, as a whole, really the last 5 million years is when they started to emerge. And then the last 2 million years is when 
you know, the modern Falcons really started uh, to come about. Now, what I really focused on this week was migration. And I know we talked about it with the leatherback sea turtles a couple of weeks ago, and you really went in that awesome discussion about like how do they know to come back to the same beach? So we're gonna we're gonna dork out on migration today a little bit more. Yes, because I still have that same question about the mirror falcon. Yeah, yeah. When I was looking over these uh, these routes that have been tracked in the past couple of years by a scientist, it's just incredible because they because what the research is showing is that. When they migrate from South Africa over to northeastern China, they take a more northerly route. And on their way home, when they stop in Nagaland to feed on the termites, uh, they take a more southerly route. Uh, it's just, it's incredible. It I mean, is. It is. Okay. Okay. So now the evolution, the evolution of migration. Why? Why did birds evolve to migrate well chris that's what i was really trying to rack my brain on with these amur falcons i'm like you're in south africa it's warm there's lots to eat you know why do you want to go to these breeding grounds in northeastern china it's so far away (laughs) and and then you get there and it's beautiful there and why do you want to go back i mean it's and they go they go it's twice a year they're doing this right Right. And I think 14 to 15,000 kilometers back and forth total. I think a lot of it has to do with diet. Like there might not be as many insects in South Africa. So they're forced to, to migrate. Here's the, the two competing theories on why birds migrate. Okay. Cause I I did go down this rabbit hole because I just find it so amazing. And it's difficult because as a behaviorist, you know, that's, that's one of your fortes. They don't, behavior traits don't fossilize, right? You can't, sure. how, how do we know how dinosaurs acted or, you know, like the thing that fascinates me with saber tooth cats, why the heck did they evolve these dagger like teeth? It's, it's got to make it hard for them to chew and, and do whatever, but it, it gave them some competitive advantage, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, but we don't know because behavioral traits don't fossilize. We don't know. Same thing with, with like birds and migration. So the main theory that I think has the most support is called the tropical origin hypothesis. So that this tropic zone species there, it was constant environments, constant food resources were pretty constant as populations grew, they started to branch out and colonize like really more Northern habitats, you know, and more Southern for the Southern. Sure. Like they're looking for food, more food, like, okay, it's kind of getting too crowded here. We need to go right this much further to look for food. Yeah. As they, as they branched out now during the summer months, great tons of food, but during the winter months, food availability decreased. So these birds went further South to the southern latitudes where there was more food and then it warmed up and then so they would they would drift north again so it was it was very step by step small increments it wasn't like all of a sudden the mer falcon said oh we're going to south africa let's go and right. flew all the way down there it it was like very slow it was a slow development 
you know, short migrations. And then migration routes became longer and longer and longer. So, but who was the first to fly over the Indian Ocean? That's, <laughs> That's... I know, I know, I know. Oh, and then we'll get into how they migrate, like, you know, uh, when we get to physiology. Now, the other theory that doesn't, I didn't, I, from the paper reading it, it didn't seem to have as much support, but is that climate kind of, the, the, the earth was cooling, so it kind of forced these birds to look for new areas to live, and then that forced them back and forth where they started okay. to, uh, to evolve their migration routes. So... You know, really, I think the general consensus is, is this started as like a very small step by step until you developed or evolved these long migratory routes. It wasn't just one day a bird said, hey, we're flying all the way down to South Africa. It was right. maybe they went to Nagaland, you know, and then back to China. And then they went to Southern India and then back to China, you know, over hundreds of thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands hundreds of years, or, you know, say it took a thousand years, then a flock or small group said, Oh, let's try this way. And they made it across the Indian ocean and then came back and said, Oh my God, look at this. And then did it again and again and again. So again, science, it, it would be fun. I was going to say, it yeah. doesn't, it's, it almost makes it even crazier when you like try to explain it. I mean, it, it just... does like, why did they do it? And we'll get to the how in a minute. Now, talking about birds and longevity, these birds can live up to 14 years in the wild, 18 years under hum human care. So I didn't think that was very long for a bird because we know albatross lives into their 60s. And I did look up the oldest living bird was a cockatoo that lived to be about 83. Wow. So yeah. the citizens, I'll say it right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they live pretty long, Good right? Good job. Yeah, of yeah. course. Well, that's why... I always pause and hesitate when people say they want them for pets. I said, well, you're going to have them as, as a grandparent. <laughs> <Yes>. So <laughs> yeah. that's commitment. Yeah. Are your grandkids ready to inherit a parrot? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's what's going to happen. <sighs> now, before we jump back into migration, because again, that, I, think, I think, and then you also have a lot of behavior that you want to cover in reproduction. So when they do migrate, again, like Angie said earlier in the podcast, they are now flying with transmitters and they're able to track them. And so in one of these trackers over a period of 60 hours, so over mm -hmm. three days, one Falcon covered close to 1800 kilometers was going at 30 kilometers an hour or 19 miles per hour. Wow. Another one had a nonstop flight because I know this was one of your questions, covered a distance of 5,600 kilometers in five days and 10 hours, average speed of 40 kilometers per hour or 25 miles per hour. So they're just humming along and they're not, they're not, they don't soar. Like we talked condors and albatross. They have to flap the entire way. It, insane that this little bird can do what it does. Well, some of the research is showing too that as they migrate over the land, whether they're heading uh, back to China from South Africa, uh, they'll go 
up the coast and they'll be on the land for a while. And it takes a while. It takes a couple of months from what studies are showing. What's fascinating is when they hit the Indian Ocean, uh, I mean, they're flying for two to three days straight. No stops, no food, no water. It's just, it's just incredible. <laughs> how, how, how did these species do this stuff? How do they do it? So that that's okay. So that was my question. Migration. How? As a scientist, it's like, okay, how, how I've got, we've got to know. Cause we're such nerds. We were like, we, we've got to know the, we got to dig down to the answer. That's what science is about. We want to answer these questions. So what we do know about migration, over 5,000 species migrate every year round trip. So we have a lot of work to do. I know we've got a lot of species we want to cover. And again, we talked about the evolution of it, but their main goal is to find the richest, most abundant food resources to help nurture their young. You know, that's, that's what they're doing. That's why they're migrating. Now, initially, when I thought of migration, what I knew of it is they use the Earth's magnetic field, right? Sure. That's what we thought. Now what we're learning is it's a lot more complex than that. I mean, the the now there's four main theories of how birds migrate. That's that magnetic sensing that they have sensory chemicals in their brains and their eyes and their bills that can sense the Earth's magnetic field and they orient and go in the right direction for their long journey. It's like they call it the internal compass, right? Mm-hmm. Another theory is geographic mapping. So they learn, you know, from the, the other birds where to go. So they know certain mountain ridges, lakes, rivers, coastlines. They, they can do it by geography. That's one theory. Star orientation, which I think you talked a little bit with with sea turtles, right? That mm-hmm. that birds that migrate at night can use the stars, the <laughs> constellations, like we did when we sailed the Earth. You know? It's incredible. Like that's just fascinating. A, I, a bird, a bird. I know. I I mean, I get happy when I'm like, ooh, there's a little dipper and the big dipper, and ooh, I, I can do Orion now. John taught right. me that because of his belt. Right. But, that's about, I know uh, you're a little bit more of a star nerd yeah. uh, and I would love to be. It's just, it's just, is it's a whole, it's so much out of, it's so much out of my comfort zone. It's a whole nother thing to learn. And these animals are born with it. Yeah. Thinking, well, yeah. we don't know for sure, but yeah. yeah. It's, it's oh, it's nuts. And then the fourth one is learned routes. So they said like sandhill cranes and snow geese learn it from their parents Sure. And then they can go back and, and do the same route. So those are well, the, the, the Yeah, four I don't think that can be the case with a mirror falcon because no. I think once they fledge, they're on their own. Right, right. Yeah, we'll get to get to some of that here in a second. Now, we know what kicks this off is, or what we, we, we assume, or what they've studied in some birds, is as light levels change, angle of the sun changes, daylight, day-night cycle changes, that triggers them hormone levels which we know in reproduction and and other species triggers them that they better get going right Mm -hmm. now in autumn in the northern hemisphere the amir falcon leaves the amur river region in northeastern asia so that's where they get their name 
And again, their route, they go south, they go around the Himalayas. They don't, they, they cannot fly over the Himalayas too much for them. They stop at Nagaland. And then when they leave Nagaland, they head south again and cross, you know, the, the Bay of Bengal or go over India. So they get on the west coast of India and then they go on that journey across the Indian Ocean. So three to four days is, is what I what I was re- reading. Now, when they reach Africa, it's not over which, yet. Which should be noted that that's between 2,300 or 3,100 kilometers. <laughs> nonstop. Nonstop. Non-stop between between uh, 44 and 80 hours. So it's nuts. It's just averaging nuts. speed of uh, 37 to uh, 56 kilometers per hour. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, I would, I guess I'd be going fast too. like, get me, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're non-stop. like, but yeah, yeah, like we got to do this. We got to go. Well, I think it's a, a it's good not point time here. to lollygag. Cause you did message me coming. and you're like, okay, how do they eat and how do they sleep? So before they fly. That's why Naga lands so critical. It, it, you have this abundance of insects. They fatten up, which again, they're a quarter of a pound. They're, they're, they're tiny, but they build yeah. up energy reserves. Well, yeah, Chris, I was reading that they need to double their weight with a few weeks that they stop over in Nagaland before they can continue their journey. So, I mean, like you mentioned, they don't weigh a lot, uh, but still doubling their weight is, that's pretty significant. Yeah, they need those those reserves, and then and then you asked an interesting question. So I had to go down this rabbit hole a little bit. How do they sleep? You know, do they just stay awake for four days while they do this and then rest? Well, the the simple answer is we don't know because you know we we need to do more research in in these birds and other birds. What the theory is is similar to like dolphins and and I think even whales. You talked about this in an episode where the left and right side of the brain are autonomous. And so they may sleep on the way, half the brain sleeping while one half's going, then the other half, which is crazy for us as humans to primates to even consider it. Because when we sleep, we're out. Well, I mean, yeah. So you're like, they're like sleeping and flying over the ocean, so exercising like crazy, and also navigating um, a vast ocean with no landmarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so doing all that. So sleeping, navigating, and exercising. I, I can barely do one of those things <laughs> at, once. At, at once, let yeah. alone putting any of them together. Right, right, right. So that's why this bird's so cool birds are cool cool. like birds are very cool they are we every bird we do we always get so and and for the for the mere falcon because uh there's definitely parental investment but pretty much once the offsprings uh fledge i mean they're on their own so now that's like so the first time they they do this amazing uh kilometer journey it's all inherent like they all they just know how to do it mm-hmm. i mean i can't even like i'm I'm just right now working with my seven-year-old my four-year-old on how to like use a map right <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah i know because we're used to using navigation now these days i mean or, or even think think about this so the back and forth so a full year migration back and forth is about four thousand to fifteen thousand 
kilometers, right? There and back. I mean, most people don't drive their cars that much in a year. No, no. Yeah, right now. And, that's, average, and we're yeah. like sitting in it, you know, yeah. this is an animal flapping their wings and oh, it's just, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's really, and, and, and it's cool too, that researchers are starting to try to learn more about their different routes, uh, and, and where they stop off and, and what they need to eat and what they're doing in order to track them, I guess, as they move through Africa and then of course through, uh, Central Asia. Now, the Somali jet stream helps them a little bit on the way. Okay. Yeah, they, they were calling it the monsoon winds. Right, right. It helps helps them a little bit push them. Now, when they go back in late spring, they have to return to Asia. The winds over the Indian Ocean have changed. That monsoon winds, or what you said, the Somali jet, makes it very hard for them to fly over the ocean. So they don't. They go up Africa and then cross the Arabian Sea into the Arabian Peninsula to get to India in April. They can't cross the Himalayas, so they fly east again, and then they they go around it up north back into North China, Mongolia, Russia, where they nest. Well, Chris, I know that researchers... uh for the longest time thought that when they were heading back to the breeding grounds in China from Africa, that they were skirting the ocean. Uh, but there's newer research from tracking data in 2017 that showed that they did take a much more northerly route over the Indian ocean, uh, than when they're coming down in the fall, but in the springtime, they still do trek across most of the Indian Ocean. Uh, once again, much a much more northerly route. But and this was a combination of, you know, eight, ten birds that they track. So we know there's hundreds of thousands of them that do this. So they, they're collecting more data each year and adding to it. But they're yeah, they're thinking that uh, they might be more in the ocean um, on that northerly route than they had mm-hmm. originally thought. Yeah, that's why this data it's just it's it's Amazing to see. Well, and for me, that begs the question, okay, well, I know when they're they're heading in the autumn, when they're heading from China to South Africa and they stop in Nagaland to feed on the termites that are emerging and and they fatten up double their size, when they, in the spring, when they're heading back to their breeding grounds um, from South Africa to uh, China, where are they fattening up there? I know, I mean, the researchers said that it was a slow route. Like it takes them like a month to two to go up the, um, up the easterly side of Africa to the African horn, then come over. But there's no, at this point, there's no mass gathering of fattening up like there is in the fall. I want to know why. I mean, I know I want to get to South Africa and get to Kruger and all these beautiful places, but why aren't they in the Serengeti Plains or like those parts of Africa? Why do they go all the way to South Africa? It's just, I know. It's just, it's just maybe too fascinating. hot. I don't know. Maybe it's too hot. I don't know. You said Africa hot, right? It's hot. It's, it's hot. Really, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, I don't know. Another question. All right. So you've got to get to some more behavior besides migration. Again, we said they're insectivores. That's the majority of their diet. They will eat other things like, other birds, lizards, rodents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
but you know, termites are big for them. Locusts, dragonflies, grasshoppers. So those are all the things that they like to eat. But what's the other like behaviors that they do? The migration is the big one, obviously, with the species. But well, Chris, in general, Amir falcons are nocturnal, and like you said, they feed on insects and things like that. But they're gonna usually hunt them uh, in the evening from a perch. And then the insects, I watched amazing video. They they catch in flight, so uh, they're really good little hunters, and they can just zip. Uh, over an insect and just gobble it up. It's just really fun to watch them, watch them fly. Uh, and different than a lot of other raptors, Amir falcons are really social for most of the year. Uh, and they will have these really large flocks where they congregate, both where they winter in South Africa and then, of course, where they breed um, and in China. And then in their migratory routes, like in Nagaland, where they're just not afraid to be thousands of them at once. And what they'll do is they'll make these communal roosts in trees. And so they are all near each other and they have no problem with that. And they, you know, have their own, their own either pecking order figured out, or they just don't mess with each other. They know that there's tons of insects to eat. So we're just going to all kind of be nice to each other and gobble them up, right? Well, Kristen, a kind of a fun fact I learned about the Miro Falcon when I was studying this week is that they participate in what is known as nest kleptoparasitism. Okay. So that was a new word for <laughs> that me. That is new uh, for all, both of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I know I know the word kleptomaniac means somebody who can't control themselves from stealing. And parasitism usually means that you're uh invading something else or harming something else. So the mirror falcon is known to practice this nest parasitism where they basically occupy the nest of other birds. Uh, And so crows and ravens, and then a more recent study showed magpies is where they like to just, you know, get out of here. This is mine. And then they, they, they take it over. And when a mirror falcons are not practicing nest kleptoparasitism, uh, they will often nest in tree holes. So yeah, I thought that that was just an interesting behavior. I mm-hmm, never had, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, I knew of the behavior. I just had never, I didn't know that with, um, uh, these tiny falcons. And I right. definitely, uh, was unaware of that fancy term. So that's we were learning, right? Yeah, yep, yep. that every week. Yep. But general to other falcons, the mer falcon is monogamous. So uh, when they're in their breeding grounds um, in uh, northeastern China along the Mir River, as you mentioned, uh, they will pick a mate and work with that mate. And after breeding, the female and the male will brood the eggs. And the female it can be anywhere up to four. So one to four eggs and both the male and the female mirror falcon will take turns sitting on them and incubating them while the other one goes out and feeds. And the incubation period is about 30 days. Uh, and then the, uh, the young will fledge after about a month from being hatched. And, uh, prior to fledging, both the male and the female will take turns feeding the young. 
Mm-hmm. So definitely on this uh, Father's Day week oh, yeah. here, yeah, 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 and yeah. Uh, here in the United States, uh, it's Father's Day uh, around that time. Uh, we have a very the Mirror Falcon is a very good father, yeah. um, and of course a good mom. But yes, we're, yes, we're, we, 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 we know we're rock. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> not le- cassowary dad level, but they're up there, right? Yeah, or, they're definitely. You know, I would even say the 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 ground hornbill or the great hornbill. You know, talk yes. about a super dad. Holy smokes. You know, yeah. they're up there with cassowaries now. So, yeah, we'll, we'll mm-hmm. add this one to the list. Yeah. And so all this is occurring in like May, June, July um, when they are in the Amur region of northeastern China. Uh, and then once again, after all this occurs in the autumn, that's when they will do their gnarly 8,000 kilometer migration to Southern Africa. Well, yeah, now that they're, you know, ever since I think 2012, really they're in the last 10 years, there's been a big focus on this, this species. So I guess there's still a lot to learn about them. There is. Yeah. Like I was trying to learn more about their courtship behaviors and things like this and, uh, was hitting a lot of, uh, dead ends. So, mm-hmm. but hopefully as popularity gain and we're doing more of these tracking studies, uh, researchers can, will be able to answer some of the general, uh, biology questions about them. Yeah. No, they're just amazing. I mean, and as a bird, their least concern, uh, the work in Nagaland has done a lot to preserve the species. So, they are no longer being poached in the tens of thousands, so which is which is really good. And then again, they, you know, we're learning so much about their migration routes, and now we're trying to figure out how they do this. So a lot of questions that are going to be answered, hopefully, in the next coming decade or two. And again, any of you young budding conservationists out there that are looking for careers, I, I'm telling you, I know I'm an elephant dork. I love the megafauna. It's where I studied for a couple decades. Look to birds, things like the Amur falcon. They are just they're 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 crazy and fun to learn about. Oh yeah, Chris, you summed it up really well. And I think the biggest highlight of this podcast is the take home message that people care about these Amur falcons and they want to save them. And it's a good news story and it's of course it's one that still is developing right because uh we all we know birds in general are not out of the woods with climate change and pollution and uh and of course habitat destruction but it is just good to know that people are out there fighting for them and we want to celebrate that on this podcast and i just uh want to give a quick shout out to the um Nagaland Wildlife and Biodiversity Conservation Trust. Uh, you can find information about how the community and then India as a whole is trying to help protect these birds uh, by going to www.peoplenotpoaching.org, Friends of Amur Falcon. And then also uh, BirdLife International um, with the extension in India. So BirdLife India has been working in Nagaland since 2013 to promote community awareness about uh, mirror falcons and how to conserve them and why we should care and things like this. And they can be found at www.b, as in boy, nhs.org. And Chris will put those links up on our show notes and a- and of course, please, please check out Chris's interview uh, that will be dropping in a couple of days to continue this inspirational story. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things I plugged a couple of weeks ago, Angie, was participate in bird counts. And again, Cornell University, amazing school with their bird, their ornithology department has a bird count app or the Merlin ID app. And I used it a couple weeks ago. I was out in the woods here in New Zealand. Nice. I know I, yeah. And I know I asked you to go out and record during a walk, which I have, and I'm going to put together a little video for Instagram. Well, and I'm so glad you did that because now I'm all into trying to identify which bird species I can hear. Yeah. I'm very lucky in Florida. I mean, I think on the video I sent you, there's probably about, I don't know, four or five, six different species in like a 10 second clip. And so the boys and I are kind of getting involved. It's summertime here. So we're out and about a lot more and spending a lot more time together. And yeah, that's one of our summer projects is trying to ID bird calls. It It is fun. It is fun. You know, again, good old Jesse's getting me into this. So the other day, so I asked you to record outdoors to, to record the sounds and a lot of birds, a lot of insects in Florida. I had Pip do it in the UK, tons of birds, just like it's a chorus. And then here I was about 30 minutes north of where I'm living and it's dead. Absolutely dead. I can't hear, I, I could barely hear, hear any birds, but I did use the Merlin ID app and I did find a silver eye, which uh, is a bird between Australia and New Zealand. But it, it, it just, it is fun. Use it with your kids. I use it, you know, going out there trying to identify some of these birds. You just pop it up and it, it has colors, location, and then you can mark where you were. So again, something just to use, conservation tip. And again, like we know in North America, Angie, you know, we've lost 4 billion birds in 50 years. So it really helps scientists and researchers understand where these birds are, what's going on with climate change, things like that. So, so thanks for doing that and thanks for participating. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm downloading the app right now as we speak. Yeah. It's a fun one and it's got bird calls in it. So like, that's what Jesse used when he was, you know, out at night trying to find Kiwi Mm -hmm. and he's playing the, the, I think it was the big Brown or one of the Kiwi species. He's playing the male call. And then the one came right up to him and pecked him in the leg and then ran off. (laughs) I love it. And he's like, it hurt. I'm like, well, you shouldn't have been teasing him. You know, you're teasing that poor bird. He thought it was was another male. He was ready to fight and uh, it was just you. So he gave you a peck and ran off, declared himself a winner. (laughs) So anyways, enjoy birds, people. Look up, look in the trees, listen, you know, listen Listen. to them. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of times you shut it out, but listen. And they enhance our lives in so many ways. But thank you for listening. Share this episode. Say, hey, you want to learn about this bird and migration? Like, why do they do it? Get people excited about it. Excited about conservation, excited about learning, but thank you so much. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.